2 Kings chapter 5. It is a text in which we see how God deals with the hearts of people. And it is a shocking passage. I say it is shocking because, well, it was so shocking that centuries later when Jesus referred to this episode, it almost got him killed. We're going to read 2 Kings 5 verses 1 through 27. It's a lengthy passage. In fact, it's the whole chapter. And then we'll pray, and then we'll get into this. But I I am looking forward to this. This is one of the underrated episodes in the Old Testament, and I like to bring those out from time to time. So let's look at it together. Now Naaman, captain of the guard of the king of Aram, was a great man with his master and highly respected, because by him the Lord had given victory to Aram. The man was also a valiant warrior, But he was a leper. Now the Arameans had gone out in bands and had taken captive a little girl from the land of Israel, and she waited on Naaman's side. She said to her mistress, I wish that my master were here with the prophet who is in Samaria. Then he would cure him of his leprosy. Naaman went in and told his master, saying, Thus and thus spoke the girl who is from the land of Israel. Then the king of Aram said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. He departed and took with him ten talents of silver, and six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothes. He brought the letter to the king of Israel, saying, And now as this letter comes to you, behold, I have sent Naaman my servant to you, that you may cure him of his leprosy. When the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive? that this man is sending word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? But consider now and see how he is seeking a quarrel against me. It happened when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, that he sent word to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Now let him come to me, and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and his chariots and stood at the doorway of the house of Elisha, Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh will be restored to you, and you will be clean. But Naaman was furious and went away and said, Behold, I thought he will surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Far, far par the rivers of Damascus better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. Then the servants came and spoke to him and said, My father, had the prophet told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he says to you, Wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, According to the word of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. When he returned to the man of God with all his company, he and came and stood before him, he said, Behold now, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. So please take a present from your servant now. But he said, As the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will take nothing. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. Naaman said, If not, please let your servant at least be given two mules load of earth, for your servant will no longer offer burnt offering, 
nor will he sacrifice to other gods, but to the Lord. In this matter may the Lord pardon your servant when my master goes into the house of Ramon to worship there, and he leans on my hand, and I bow myself in the house of Ramon. When I bow myself in the house of Ramon, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. He said to him, Go in peace. So he departed from him some distance. But Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, thought, Behold, my master has spared Naaman the Aramean by not receiving from his hands what he brought. As the Lord lives, I will run after him and take something from him. So Gehazi pursued Naaman. When Naaman saw one running after him, he came down from the chariot to meet him and said, Is all well? He said, All is well. My master has sent me, saying, Behold, just now two young men of the sons of the prophets have come to me from the hill country of Ephraim. Please give them a talent of silver and two changes of clothes. Naaman said, Be pleased to take two talents. And he urged him and bound two talents of silver in two bags with two changes of clothes and gave them to two of his servants, and they carried them before him. When he came to the hill, he took them from their hand and deposited them in the house, and he sent the men away, and they departed. But he went in and stood before his master. And Elisha said to him, Where have you been, Gehazi? And he said, Your servant went nowhere. Then he said to him, Did not my heart go with you when the man turned from his chariot to meet you? Is it a time to receive money and to receive clothes and olive groves and vineyards and sheep and oxen and male and female servants? Therefore the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and to your descendants forever. So he went out from his presence, a leper as white as snow. Let's pray. Father, uh, just quite simply I ask that you would speak your word as we have opened your word and read your word. May your Holy Spirit implanted upon our hearts and change us, sanctify us for your glory. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. There is really, uh, this is a, a gold mine, and we're just going to scratch the surface here tonight. But I want to start with the hard truth right from the start. And it's that as sinners, we basically want things the way we want them. You know? We want things the way we want them. It's kind of just human nature. I know that. In my house, I want the air conditioning on and cool, right? But in more important matters, we just, and, and sometimes in a lot less important matters, we are just determined to want things the way we want them. And sometimes that even comes to how we treat God. We want God to work among us. We pray for God to work among us, but when and how He chooses to work sometimes doesn't fit with our schedule, sometimes doesn't fit with what we want to see. And it reveals in those times our sinful hearts. You know, we can give lip service to God, but too often we want God our way, in our own image, working the way we think He should. And it's like that today. It's been like that since the fall, really. It was like that 2,800 years ago in modern-day Israel and Syria. Second Kings 5 brings us into what is known as the divided kingdom era. You've got Israel to the north and Judah to the south. Um, Judah was ruled by descendants of King David. There were a few good kings in there and there were some awful kings in there. And then in the north you've got this never-ending train of immoral, 
idolatrous kings. There's not one king of Israel in the divided kingdom era that's spoken well of. Uh, They all did evil in the sight of the Lord. Had gods that weren't the one true God. They did not obey His commandments. The, The one that jumps out to me is always King Ahab. King Ahab is famous because you know he had his wife Jezebel, and to this day, if you want to insult a woman, you might call her a Jezebel. And uh, he was horribly wicked. He spoke with prophets of God like Elijah and Micaiah, and he rejected them for his false prophets, which were really just yes men. He surrounded himself with people who said what he wanted to hear, basically. Um, Micaiah, by the way, you may not be familiar with that name, and maybe I should have done that. If I'm doing stuff that I'm, that's my favorite thing, First Kings 22, go home and read that tonight about Micaiah because that's one of the most fam- my, one of my favorite underrated stories in all of the Bible. But uh, he, he prophesied when Ahab was going to die. You're going to go into battle. You shouldn't go into battle, but you should, you're going to go into battle. You're going to get killed in this battle. And that's exactly what happened. And, and while it's not confirmed in Scripture... The first century historian named Josephus uh, records that it was Naaman, the Aramean, who killed Ahab in that battle. We don't know that for sure, but that's just an interesting tidbit. But 2 Kings 5 then happens when the northern kingdom is still around. They've just recently been defeated by the Arameans. Just to kind of give you background there. In your translation, it might say Syria, by the way, and those are, those two names are inter- interchangeable. Uh, they were the dominant regional power of that time. So it, they, they were involved with Israel in this kind of hot and cold war. It was on and then it was off. And 2 Kings 5 is written uh, about a time in which it was kind of a cold war uh, mentality. And, and what we see is that though man has his own ideas about how things should be, the love of God through His Word and through His action can transcend the heart of a dead sinner and bring life and salvation. But as I mentioned this morning, you have to come to Him on His terms. You have to come on to God on His terms and not your own. And we see that again here tonight in this passage. If you fail to do that, it's disaster for your soul. Not just now, but for eternity. But God is, is sovereign over everything and he, he saves all men everywhere who humble themselves and come to Him repentant by faith. And so in verse 1, we see Naaman is captain of the army of the king of Aram. What that means is essentially he's the commander-in-chief of the dominant military power of the time. And so this is not an insignificant man. This is a very important man who commanded respect even from his master and the only man who can be the master of a guy like this is the actual king of Aram or Syria and so he was highly respected and why because the Lord had given victory to Aram now let me say that again because Israel is the people of God right but the Lord had given victory to Aram God for his purposes made Naaman great. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob gave a Gentile victory over his people. The God of Israel gave Naaman the Aramean victory over Israel. So this chapter reminds us, first off, and there's, I mean, again, there's so much we could get out of this chapter, but it reminds us, first off, that God is the God of all the nations. 
God, God is the God of all peoples and all people groups. God is sovereign over all of His creation. And we've sung that tonight. Above all powers, above all kings, above all created things. God is sovereign. You know, national boundaries don't bind God. Ethnicities don't bind God. Uh, economic situations don't bind God. God uses anyone and anything and any time He desires to bring blessing or in, in some cases like this to bring judgment against sin even against His own people Israel. He's disciplining them, disciplining them as a loving father does. 2 Kings 5. And they were during this time in a state of perpetual sin. They never learned from their mistakes. They forsook God all the time. They acted just like all of the other nations around them. They practiced rampant idolatry. They didn't listen to the men God sent like Elijah, like Micaiah, like Elisha in this passage. So God did give Naaman the victory and not Israel. Now, was Naaman any better than the Israelites? The answer is no, of course. Because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And Naaman, being an Aramean, was used to going into the temple of a false god named Ramon, which is mentioned, he mentions in this passage. He was an idol worshiper. So he wasn't any better than the Israelites, but in a way he wasn't as bad as the Israelites because he should have known, or they, they, they should have known better. The Israelites are the ones who should have known better. We see Jesus say in the New Testament, to whom much is given, much is required. I think he could say that about the church today. You're here on a sunny night. It shows you care, right? I hope you're here because you care. Well, to whom much is given, much is required. And he has... What I'm trying to get at is God had given Israel the covenants. God had given them the promises. God had given them, as we saw this morning, the land. And He'd given them His Word, prophets. They had the testimony of their forefathers who were delivered by God time after time after time after time. And at present, they also had a prophet of God named Elisha, who, again, we'll get to a little bit more in a minute. But God made Naaman great, the Aramean. A valiant warrior, a man to be respected, and a leper. But he was a leper is how verse 1 ends. And leprosy, of course, is found throughout the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament. It's often used as a metaphor in both Testaments, uh, imagery for sin. And just as there are various forms of sins that have various degrees of impact upon our lives... There were several forms of leprosy, and some of them were more debilitating than others. It would seem that Naaman's case was not one of the more debilitating types, but it was serious enough to Naaman. Last night, I've been working in my basement because I'm about to be moving across the county, and I'm kicking up all kinds of dirt and cat hair in my basement. My allergies were out of control. Not a very serious ailment. In fact, when I woke up this morning with a message about preaching here, I'm like, i got to give myself five minutes to see if I'm still sneezing uncontrollably. And thankfully the Benadryl worked. But it was serious enough to me last night. I was miserable, okay? Naaman, it was serious enough to him. And of course, leprosy is a lot more serious than a, uh, an allergy attack anyway. But it was serious enough to the people around Naaman too. 
which is what I find staggering. One of these people we find in verses 2 and 3 was a little girl taken captive from Israel by Naaman in that battle he won. In the providence of God, she was basically waiting on Naaman's wife. And this girl... Now, if, if, if in the providence of God I ever find myself in any kind of situation like this, I'd like to think that if I was a captive... I'd like to think that if I was a prisoner of war, that I would be able to maintain a godly disposition through it all. I'd like to think that my faith in Jesus Christ would shine out and be evident even in a terrible situation like that. That, 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 that I would be setting my mind on the things above and not on the things of the earth even in a situation like that. This little girl did that. We see that. She's ripped away from her home, but it's obvious in her words that she has a love for others, which in a situation like this can only be God-given kind of love. I wish that my master, and you can insert a bracket here, who kidnapped me, I wish that my master were with the prophet who is in Samaria, then he would cure him of his leprosy. That's love. With no hint of bitterness, no seeking selfish gain. And and that's what love is, isn't it? Love does not seek its own. Love always wants, not necessarily what the object of that love wants. You know, I love my children, but I don't always give them what they want. Uh, The best kind of love is the love that gives them what is best for them. And that's what this little girl was doing. Um... She doesn't harbor bitterness about her situation. Her, her statement is an expression of faith, really, in the one true God. There's a prophet in Samaria. You know, she's exiled, but there's a prophet back home who could help him. And in telling Naaman this, she's expressing faith in the God that gave that prophet his power. And Naaman finds out, and, and you have to think that if he's the commander of the army and he has leprosy, that he's probably had every available thing made, he's probably had everything available made available to him to cure him of his leprosy and nothing's worked. You have to think that he would have tried almost everything by this point and nothing has worked. So rather than dismiss her, he goes to his master and again, the only master a guy like this can have is the king. And the king sends Naaman to Israel And do you know he doesn't send them empty-handed? Verse 5, 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, 10 changes of clothes. Let me kind of translate that. That's over 750 pounds of silver, 150 pounds of gold. And by the way, it kind of, next to that, 10 changes of clothes doesn't sound like much, but that was quite a gift then in that culture as well. So this is not a small deal. What this shows is Naaman and his king are going about fixing a problem, but the thing is they're fixing it the way the world fixes problems. They aren't viewing this potential healing through the eyes of faith. You know, first of all, the girl had told Naaman there was a prophet in Samaria. She didn't say, go to the king. But, but Naaman and his king still had their minds on the things of the earth here. And just as we often view potential solutions to our problems with worldly eyes, and, and, and sometimes we, we view our problems without thinking about God first, who's the God over our problems, they go to the king, they have politics in mind. 
And, and it makes sense because if you think back to King Ahab, the one Naaman may have actually killed, Ahab surrounded himself with prophets. And I, I use the fake quotation marks there. They were, again, they were yes men. Pharaoh, when the exodus happened, who did he surround himself with? These, these fake magician type people. The, these, these yes men type of people. So the king of Aram and Naaman are thinking the way to be healed is to actually go through the king of Israel because in their mind, prophets do the bidding of the king, not to a real God. So that much is evident from the letter sent to the king of Israel. I have sent Naaman my servant to you that you may cure him of his leprosy. So they were putting... Imagine being the king of Israel getting this letter from a king who has just beaten you in battle. I'm putting it on you to make sure he's cured, basically. Not, not on the one true God. And how often, again, how often do we do similar things? How often do we place our hopes in worldly situations, not on the God who created the heavens and the earth, <clears throat> but on other things. You know, we play situational dodgeball in our heads, like if I do this, will I avoid this? And instead of just taking it to the Lord. And again, they're not there yet in their, 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 their hearts. They're not there yet to take it to the Lord in their hearts. But God's at work here. The king of Israel, he gets this letter and he does what you'd probably do if you were him. He tears his clothes, which is, again, we we're familiar with this in Scripture. It's a sign of anguish, mourning, uh, distress. <clears throat> and why? Because he knows he's not God. He knows he's not God. He's ignoring God, but he knows he's not God. He knows he can't kill. He can't make alive. And though he knows of Elisha, it's clear he doesn't believe Elisha can either. He doesn't trust in Elisha's God. And unlike the captive girl, he, he doesn't trust in the God of Israel. And that explains that self-centered reaction. Woe is me, woe is me. He thinks Naaman's coming to him is a ploy by the Arameans to attack him again. But regardless, the power of men, the power of kings was insufficient. So now, uh, you know... Naaman's not getting any better this way. So now enter Elisha. And in verse 8, the king, he's torn his clothes, and Elisha hears about it. So this news made the rounds. Big news that the king tore his clothes. And Elisha sends word to the king asking why, and not waiting for an answer, asks the king to send Naaman to him. How did he know Naaman was there? Maybe by divine revelation. I don't know. But word got around. But note why Elisha wanted Naaman sent to him. Elisha makes no reference to him being cleansed or healed, but so he would know there is a prophet in Israel. So he would know that there is someone speaking for a God in Israel. A real God. Remember in Naaman's mind, prophets belong near the king. Well, Elisha wasn't welcome in the king's presence. Elisha then wanted Naaman to know there is someone speaking for God. There is someone speaking for the one who does kill and does make alive. And he, by the way, can also cure your leprosy. So Naaman goes, his horses, his chariots. 
you can imagine this grand procession befitting a man of his distinction. And it is shocking when he comes to the doorway of the prophet and Elisha does not come to greet him. Verse 10, Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh will be restored to you and you will be clean. Now why did Elisha do that? Why did Elisha send a messenger? Well, here's why I think why, as I understand it. To show Naaman that Elisha is not the one with the power here. Elisha is not in charge of his prophetic gift. God is in charge of his prophetic gift. And Elisha is not some wonder worker out to make a buck and gain power or today, you know, fill stadiums, or even be buddies with people in power. He's not out there to be the king of Israel's buddy. His job is simply to speak the word of God. To speak, and that's really all God God calls any of us to do, by the way. When we're told to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, teaching them all that Jesus commanded, baptizing them in the... Speak the Word of God. We can't save people, but the Word of God can save people. So in a way, this is what we're called to do. Speak the Word of God, and God will work it out according to His will. So he doesn't meet Naaman, and what's more, he sends Naaman away. He sends him somewhere else to get cleansed. To show it's not me, it's God that's going to do this work in you. It's not me, it's Him. And he puts it to Naaman. And now it's Naaman who's got to deal with the situation. Will he follow the words of the man of God, which are the words of God? Well, how did he respond? Look again at verses 11 and 12. But Naaman was furious and went away and said, Behold, I thought he will surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? He got the word of God. He got the way to be cured. He just did not like it. He didn't like the message. He didn't trust in God's provision for his cleansing. In fact, he was insulted by it. In 1 Corinthians 1, Paul says that the full... the, the the, the cross is foolishness. The message of the cross is foolishness. It is a stumbling block to the Jews. It is foolishness to the Greeks. But it is the power of God unto salvation for those who believe. Here, he is rejecting God's provision of cleansing. In fact, he's insulted by it. It's not what he's expecting. He, he's Elisha's God in his mind, is not any different than the gods up in Aram, like Ramon. God's not God to Naaman yet. Not holy, he's not unique, he's not high and lifted up, he's not the Lord. So, to Naaman, this is just another religious exercise, just another ritual cleansing, nothing truly special. And it's an insult. Degrading to wash in the Jordan River when the river's back home were, were better, in his opinion. So he, he goes away in a rage. Dissatisfied with God, what God had provided. 
kind of like the Israelites were with the, the, the manna in the wilderness. Remember that? He wanted to see Elisha, to see a show, wave his hand, be cured. He wanted to be healed. How? The way he wanted to be healed. He wanted salvation on his terms. His biggest problem, as it turned out, was not his leprous skin. It was his leprous heart. He heard the word of God, but it wasn't good enough for him. And that brings us to the next shocking element of all this. And I am going to try to speed forth now because I'm noticing in my notes I'm just about halfway through them. So I'm going to try to speed up a little bit. But these servants call out their master on his pride. Look at verse 13. My father, had the prophet told you to do some great thing, would you have not done it? How much more then when he says to you, wash and be clean? And you can almost hear the words of Jesus in Matthew 6, but if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will He not much more clothe you, you of little faith? And how often, beloved, do we not trust in God to take care of even the littlest things in our lives? Oh, we of little faith in those cases. But God is humbling. This is God humbling the exalted and exalting the humbled. Everyone at Naaman's social status or above is exhibiting no faith at all in what God is saying here. And everyone below Naaman is trying to show him, you're crazy for not just doing this. You're crazy for not not trusting in this. It's not as if anything else has worked. It's to show him that he's not in control. God's in control. You would have done something elaborate had Elisha told you to do something elaborate. Why not do this little thing? So Naaman does. And that's because God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. So he went down, verse 14, and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child who was clean, and, and he was clean. And that is, just, if you want to underline this, bold highlight, the obedience of faith is the byproduct of a humbled heart. The obedience of faith is the byproduct of a humbled heart. Once the leprosy on Naaman's heart was removed through his humility, the leprosy on his skin soon followed. Naaman obeys the words of the man of God finally, and so he receives God's only provision for his cleansing. He obeys the words of the man of God, and his flesh is restored like the flesh of a little child. And it was a child that God used to start all this. Naaman had looked to the prophet for the cure instead of heeding the words of the prophet. Note what I said there. He was looking to the prophet instead of heeding the words of the prophet. Don't get caught up in personalities, beloved. Get caught up in the word of God. He listened and he was finally cleansed. Like anyone who's been given a new heart by God, Naaman went then to where God's word could be found. Because if you're made alive by God... What we read about in 1 Peter is that we start to long for the Word. If someone's not longing for the Word, 
there's reason for concern for their soul. And, 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 and he longs for where he found God's word, which is Elisha. So he goes back to him, when he verse, verse 15, When he returned to the man of God with all his company and came and stood before him, he said, Behold, now I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. And, and what that, that's his profession of faith, beloved. He is repenting and he has a profession of faith here. The irony here is most Israelites in Naaman's day were turning their back on God for idols and immorality. So in that sense, Naaman's statement that the Lord is the one true God is a condemnation upon Israel. In fact, it wouldn't be too much longer before God allowed the the Assyrians to come in and, and totally crush that northern kingdom of Israel. But Naaman was walking in the newness of spiritual life. And true faith in the true God always results in that. Tries to give Elisha a gift. Elisha says no. It's God who deserves the center stage. Naaman asks then for two mules, loads of dirt. And I'm going to kind of speed through this part. Why did he do that? Because he wants to build altars using the dirt of the land of Israel's God. That's what I think there. I will no longer offer burnt offering, nor I will, will I sacrifice to other gods, but to the Lord, who is now unique and holy to Naaman. And he would have to live out his new faith. He knew he'd have to go back to Aram. He'd have to be in the service of the king. He would have to accompany the king into the temple of Ramon. So he, he tells Elisha all this. He'd, he'd be in a tough spot. So what he does in verse 18 is basically ask for Elisha's blessing. Give him permission. That I, when I go in there, I'm not worshiping Ramon. I'm going because I'm with the king, but I'm not worshiping Ramon. And Elisha basically gives him his blessing. What does he say there? He says, uh, oh, I've lost it. Go in peace. Go in peace. Wouldn't be the first time, by the way, that someone had to serve God in the company of an evil king or a, 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 an idolatrous king. Think Daniel, think Nehemiah. Why is this one of my favorite stories? And it's not a story, it really happened, but why is this one of my favorite accounts? Because it's a picture of our salvation. We are the lepers. I'm, I'm, I'm the leper, you're the leper. And, and there's nothing we can take, no medicine we can take, no money we can give, no dances we can do, no, no, no rituals, but come to God in repentance and faith, believing the words of God. It's the only way we can be saved. And it takes an act of God to do that in the human heart. And so what we see here is that God in His sovereignty cleansed Naaman's heart. God is sovereign over all and saves all who come to Him in repentant faith. And that's shocking that He would do that. You know, I sometimes get asked, and maybe your, your pastor does too, maybe David does too, why doesn't God just save everybody? The question to ask is why does God save anybody? Why does he save a leper like me? A sinner who has... And that's the shocking part of this. 
he saves regardless of nationality, regardless of ethnicity, regardless of history. And Jesus used this as an example in Luke 4 when he goes into his hometown of Nazareth, into the synagogue, because as you might recall there, there were many lepers in Israel, he said, in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed but only Naaman the Syrian. And what Jesus was trying to do there was show the people, and though they were the religious people from his own hometown, he was trying to show them that he's the Messiah they've been looking for, He's the one who's come to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he uses the example of Naaman that God is in the business of saving both Jews and Gentiles. And of course the people didn't like that. They rioted and they almost threw him off a cliff, if you recall. Luke chapter 4. They didn't like that God was in the business of saving people on his terms and, and, and much less people who didn't, maybe didn't think like them and talk like them and walk like them. But God is shockingly saving all kinds of people. And He saves our leprous hearts. Just real quick here about Gehazi. He's an example of someone who has such close proximity to the Word of God. He's Elisha's assistant, his servant, his right-hand man. He's got this close proximity to the Word of God, and yet his heart is so hardened that he basically hears Elisha say, I don't want anything from you, Naaman. And he says, well, I want something from you, Naaman. And we see how it worked out for him. Just to read that epitaph on his life. Therefore the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and to your descendants forever. So he went out from his presence a leper white as snow. This is the danger for us. This is the danger for Bible Belt Christians, okay? We know of so many people, and maybe we are these people tonight. I, 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 I preach this not knowing each individual's heart. And I'm certainly not the judge but we're all here on a Sunday night. We've all come to hear the Word of God. We're in proximity to the Word of God. What are we doing with it? What are the people who were here this morning and not here tonight for whatever reason? God bless them. I'm glad they were here this morning. We have such proximity to the Word of God. Are we in practice acting more like repentant Naaman? Or like this hard-hearted... Gehazi, who in, in pride and self-sufficiency went his own way to gain. And that's what I want to just kind of close with tonight. How are we responding? We're no better than Naaman. And we're only better of, of, if, of, if, of Gehazi if we realize we're no better than Naaman. And we come to God on his terms. And his terms are quite simply this. He has a requirement, and that is perfect righteousness. Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. That's what Jesus said. And of course, we all have a problem. There is none righteous, not even one of us. Paul writes that in Romans 3. There's none who does good. There's none who seeks after God. 
And, and just in case you think he's just making that up, he's just quoting the Old Testament when he says these things. So we've all sinned and will fall short of the glory of God. And the result, if nothing changes, is, is you know, we kind of shy away from the book of Revelation because we think it's confusing. But Revelation 20 is far from confusing, in my opinion. It talks about a great white throne judgment where all unbelievers will be judged for eternity in the lake of fire. And that is the real reality, the real eternal destiny of everyone if nothing changes. Thank God He has made one provision. God gave Naaman through Elisha one way to be cleansed. And He has given you and He has given me and He has given the whole world tonight one provision for His salvation, for our salvation. And it's His Son. the one who told the Jews in Nazareth that only Naaman the Syrian was killed, he was that Messiah here to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Beloved, we've got to come to Jesus Christ. The one and only solution is Jesus Christ who went to the cross and bore the full fury of the wrath of His Father for all sin, for all time, for all who will ever come to Him in repentant faith for all who will ever entrust themselves to Him. He bore the penalty of sin so that we could be made alive. And He rose from the grave to guarantee that victory. And tonight, even in, uh, in this setting, I ask you, have you come to Him like this? Have you come to Jesus like Naaman finally went into those waters at the end of yourself with no other recourse for your eternity but to trust in Jesus Christ? Yes, you're at church on a Sunday night. Praise God. But have you, that's not what's going to save you. Coming to Christ like Naaman finally went into those waters is what's going to save you. At the end of yourself, depending wholly on God's provision. That's the only God's provision is the only way the Jews would have survived in the wilderness coming out of Egypt. It's the only way Naaman was cleansed of his leprosy, and it's the only way any of us is going to avoid the lake of fire and spend eternity with God in a new heaven and a new earth. If you're like me tonight, I keep hitting the mic, but maybe you trust in Christ. But perhaps when you look back in, at yourself in the spiritual mirror of your life, you see more of the idolatry of Israel than Naaman. And I just tell, you know, just to kind of quote some New Testament to you, remember Jesus Christ, descendant of David, risen from the dead. John closes his first letter, Little children, guard yourselves from idols. We've got to purge the idols from our lives. And those idols don't have to be statues. They can be money. They can be comfort. They can be security. They can be leisure. They can be tradition. They can be change. People make idols of all kinds of things. Anything that blocks your way to the cross... We have to accept 
the authority of God's Word if we're going to accept Him at all. And what this tells us, this passage, is that it's possible because the Sovereign Lord shockingly saves leprous hearts. And I thank God for that. I mean, I'm getting excited just talking about this again. It's the first time I've read this passage in a while before today, to be honest with you. But if that doesn't get, if, if this doesn't get you excited, maybe it's because it's a, a poor messenger. I don't know. But man, what a message. I praise God for it. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for the opportunity to come here again tonight and just share this. I, I'm just humbled, Father. That, you know, this morning we the, the message focused on your faithfulness and how we've got to respond to it. Tonight we sing that great hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness. We sing Above All, which talks about your sovereignty over all things. I mean, the music is pointing us to you t- today. And I just read this passage and preach these words that I've preached before, a lot of them. But I'm just... You know, as the song goes, morning by morning, new mercies I see. As I look at this passage again, new mercies I see, Father. And I'm just astounded by your grace towards someone like me. And I pray that if anyone's here and and they haven't come to know you in this way, Father, that you would just break through their dead heart today and make them alive. I pray, Father, if there's anyone here who maybe... Maybe they're saved. Maybe they know you, but they, they've been looking elsewhere. They've been taking their eyes off of the cross. They've been taking their eyes off of the, the glorious salvation you have given us in Jesus Christ. Father, renew their zeal. You know, as, as, as David writes in Psalm 51, Restore unto us, restore unto me, the joy of your salvation, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. I pray that, Lord, for my brothers and sisters here tonight. May none of us leave unchanged, if even a little bit. Lord, may we all be astounded by your grace. And I just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.